Make sure you check out our online store where we work with our graphic designer to create stunning garment and product designs that feature a wide variety of aircraft types such as British fighters, World War II aircraft, American bombers, Russian fighters and much more. You can pick your favourite designs and personalise any items within our Redbubble store that range from clothing right the way through to stationery. All of our designs feature our logo so you can show your support for the channel while getting a quality product. You can head to our website aircrewinterview.tv and click store or go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash AC interview. Thank you and enjoy. Yeah, it sounds like you sharpened your claws on uh, the, the, the my 17 and, and the 8 there. But uh, yeah, let's move on then because I want to talk about uh, the my 24 and 35. So... Obviously, it's been famously in Top Gun now, which I'm sure you've seen. And uh, yeah, but let's uh, talk about how you got ported to the hind and what was the role of the aircraft uh, with the Indian Air Force. So it was 1984, I told you the aircrafts came in. And the first lot of people were still flying them when our postings came in 1989. So the five years, we had a fixed set of people flying them. Uh, these are the aircraft which these, uh, the original lot of people went to Russia. They trained there and they came back with the Mi-25. That is a basic Mi-25, uh, that is the Hind E actually, uh, Hind D, not the Hind E, Hind, Hind D, which came from Russia. So it had the basic, you know, it, it could, uh, the Indian Air Force in those times were just using it for rocketry, the front gun, and not much, not more than that, and some bombing, some mm -hmm. bombing. That's what we were doing. But when the Mi-35 came, it came off with all the gizmos. You know, it had all the sights, uh, different sights, automatic sights, it had a different set of armament. It could fire the missile. Of course, I forgot the missile on the uh, on the Mi-25 was a basic missile, whereas we had a supersonic missile on the Mi-35 when it ah. came. The Strom, the 86, uh, ATA 86, we call uh, standard um, missile, which could uh, just be launched and it could it could go three kilometers with a blink of an eye, you know, and uh, shoot down a tank. So basically, the it was not an attack helicopter. It was an anti-tank helicopter. Okay, right. Fought for support of the army, right? Mm -hmm. But being what we are, we we quickly, you know, devised ways and means to utilize it in support of other operations, like you know, bunker busting to um, you know anti um, what is it called um, uh, air defense, uh, anti-air defense in, in the sense busting the radars mm -hmm. on the other side. So those kind of things also uh, became part of our journey in the attack helicopters then. Mm -hmm. And once we had the Israelis do the upgrade in which we got the low light television and we got a glass cockpit, a semi-glass cockpit, and we got uh, everything that was required, then uh, flying by day and night became, and those sophisticated helmets with uh, everything coming on your visors. So it became, <clears throat> it became a piece of cake to fly the aeroplane by day, night, whatever it was like. To like uh, technology, you know, you're just taking you from it A, a to B. So uh, the Mi-35 uh, came in a little late uh, when we came back from Sri Lanka. 1989 okay. uh, was the time when these aircrafts came back from Sri Lanka. These aircrafts were um, utilized. The entire squadron was away in Sri Lanka when we got posted in. Mm -hmm. We used to only see the aircrafts coming in to for their servicing and going back again. You know, we never got to fly yes, them in yes. Sri Lanka. When, when they came back, the Mi-35 also landed up, the first of the Mi-35s. Mm -hmm. So, 
they were a newer machine, their engines were newer, the systems were better. So we started flying uh, those and those were of course, and we could fly both of them. Uh, we were allowed to fly both, both the types. There was not an issue about uh, that at all. So the, so it was it was a different machine. Uh, it had a tandem uh, cockpit. Mm -hmm. Everything you had to do, you are, you are used to, a, in a twin engine, you are used to the engineer you know, starting up the engines for you, putting on the switches for you, and you know, <laughs> sitting in the you are, you are like an airline pilot, you know, autopilot on and flying from A to B. And only using your uh, controls, uh, your hands and legs only on the last, in the last parts of your uh, sorties. Over here, uh, to put on all the switches yourself, to ensure that everything was under your command. There mm -hmm. was a flight engineer who was standing in the little alleyway behind us, just trying to monitor, but he was also not required. Actually, he was he's not part of the crew in the Russian on the Russian side. But the Indians decided to have a flight engineer on board for some reason, uh, good or bad, we'll, uh, it's a different issue. But he was there, but he couldn't even reach out to any switch. He was just there to monitor. Mm -hmm. So when you are looking outside and flying, he would look at the engine instruments and all and say everything is fine, everything is going fine because there was no right. time to look inside when you ultra low level flying. With all the flying, most of the flying that we did on the Mi-35 was absolutely deck level. Wow. It was so low that if you put down your undercarriage, you could touch the ground. <laughs> it, was, it was that, it was that, that wow. We used to fly between trees and, uh, and this aircraft, of course, we were very thrilled with the fact that we had a undercarriage that could go up and come down, you know, yeah, like yeah. any other. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's a crazy aircraft. So I was, was going to ask, just moving back a bit, uh, what was your first thoughts when you saw one up close? Because I've seen one up close and I'm like, wow, this is a beast. This is amazing. What were your thoughts? It was a beast, all right. It oh, was yeah. a beast, all right. And it had armor plating all around. Yeah. It had armor plating all around. And the way you got into the aircraft itself, it was like climbing on top of a camel. <laughs> you climb up into the cockpit and once you get inside you're cocooned completely mm -hmm. once the door closes you're like inside and uh, nobody else with you and uh, your, your co-pilot sits in the front who operates the front gun in the in the swivel mode and you know does the missile work and all that so he was uh, he's he sat in the front and the control there was no there was no instrumentation in the front okay it had just it was just basic one or two flying instruments which were on your side, on your left. The airspeed wow. indicator, the altitude thing is on the left. You could have had to look left and, you know, kind of fly it from the front. Wow. The basic controls could be stored away. You could store away the controls and uh, there were no controls available to fly the aeroplane uh, if you had to do your other work. You know? So it was, it was different. It was a beautiful aircraft. Yeah, and let's talk a bit about your ground training and flying training. How how did you change your mindset coming from the Mi eight and seventeen? Was there a big difference there? Of course, of course, of course, no doubt about it. Over there, you know, you, that's more peacetime. I felt. I mean, one feels now when I look back, that was more peacetime flying. Although we were doing right, going right up to the border, but we didn't have anything to kind of save us if somebody fired at mm -hmm. us. You know, out here we were offensive. We had to have an offensive bent of mind. Our whole mindset had to undergo a change to kill people. In fact, um, yeah. I have written an article about killing people in one of the magazines uh, just a few weeks ago. About the first time, what you, what I felt while uh, shooting at live, at a live target. Mm. So those kind of, uh, we never were exposed to that kind of thing, except for some armament work, which was done on the Mi-17, uh, which was like 
practice only. We never thought that we would be utilized in an offensive role. In this case, in the Mi 35's case, there was no other there was no other choice but to use it in the offensive role, in the yes, anti-tank. And of course, and go go beyond the borders all the time. I mean, think about going beyond your borders all the time. You know, that was the difference. So the mindset uh, completely went underwent a change. We were like we were like those fighter pilots, you know, gung ho, and uh, waiting to get the kill types. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, what was your first squadron you started training with, and where were you based on the uh, twenty-five? And I was in, I was in a squadron called uh, one two five one two five helicopter squadron. That was the first attack helicopter squadron of the air force. Today it flies the Apache. Yeah, today it flies the Apache, and uh, it was based in Pathankot, uh, Pathankot, where the terrorist attack happened a few years ago, if you remember. Uh, it is right next to the Pakistan border. It's yes. right next to the Pakistan border, and we were affiliated to the army then, so we were flying in conjunction with the army uh, for a large number of missions. Mm-hmm. And could you so, tell us? Oh, yeah. sorry. Uh, no, no, I was going to tell you about, you asked me about training, ground training for yes. me 35. Yeah, so that that was rather long, rather long because of the systems that it had. Plus the armament system, we had never started so much about armament delivery and armament systems. Mm-hmm. So one had to really go through a lot of studies before you actually started flying the aircraft. Wow. Uh, so that was, a, yeah, a lot of, lot of groundwork had to be done, especially uh, in systems that we were not used to. Otherwise, the engines are... By and large, the same. The controls are by and large the same as a Mi 8 and a Mi 17. Mm-hmm. The looks may be different, but the controls are by and large the same. They're a little heavier than a Mi 17, but uh, uh, similar to fly. And on flying-wise, there was not a problem. But ut- utilizing the machine as a weapon, mm-hmm. an offensive weapon, one had to know all the other systems that were on board. You know? mm-hmm. So that was different. Yes. And how did you deal that uh, with in your mind as well? Like, obviously, you were offensive. You might go and, you know, hurt people, kill people. Was that okay in your mind? Or were you just kind of focused on the flying? You didn't, did that come into your thought pattern at all? I think, I think uh, once you, once you have to, once you have posted to an aeroplane, which is supposed to do it, I suppose the, it, it comes with the package. Mm-hmm. It comes with the package. Yes. You, you, yeah, you, once you get trained on it and you, what else, you have to fire the rocket at the target, you have to fire the bombs at the target, you know, you have to fire the front guns at somebody. So, um, so it, you are using the machine mm-hmm. as you are taught to, mm-hmm. whether it be a live target or a, or a, or a dummy target, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. So when, when I first fired at human beings that was uh, in Congo, in the United Nations peacekeeping uh, mission mm-hmm. in Congo. When I fired it for the first time at live targets, yes. When I pulled the trigger the first time, it was it was difficult. Mm. Uh, I must I must admit that there is there is something that you know you're going to kill somebody, and you're aiming at somebody which is moving. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was uh, and when you come down after the sortie, the post-flight uh, effect on your mind it 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 takes some time to come out of it. Yes, I do agree. Yeah, I've heard that a few times from people who've uh, you know flown in combat. Yeah, it's like once you're doing the mission, it's you don't really think about it. It's once you're back on the ground, then it all kicks in. So yeah, that's when it takes time. But yeah, obviously you kind of mentioned it before. Yeah, uh, what was it like having a backseater? Because it almost feels like yeah, like it's like a fighter jet with a rotor almost behind. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So uh, when you see it from the ground flying flying from the ground, you can make out that it's a very mean kind of a machine. Oh, you know, God, yes. Mean, yeah, <laughs> it was very mean. 
and when you're sitting inside when you think about the other people looking at it yeah you you feel that you know you're the mean guy and you got to get those bad men out types you know so yeah. you you're like that policeman on the beat trying to find out <laughs> the bad man the the bad men and try to kill them yes so yes it is, it is like that that kind of a feeling yes yeah Absolutely. And let's talk about some of the weapons it could carry and obviously the gun. Can you talk us through that for our viewers? Yeah, it had a plethora of weapons. It could it could dispense grenades, it could dispense bomblets, it could uh, fire the, the biggest rocket uh, in the world, the, uh, which is fired by the bigger fighters. It could fire the biggest rockets, a 130 millimeter rocket, huge, wow. Wow, that's huge big. rocket. It was called the SU-20. Uh, uh, what is it called? Um, the it was a. I'll just I'll just get to that name. Otherwise, it had the rockets, the 57 millimeter rocket, the two uh, 240 millimeter rocket. That was the uh, big one I, uh, that I was talking about. It just could carry four of them. And uh, other than that, we had those four missiles on the aircraft, always there on four missiles that could take on four tanks. And the front gun, it's an amazing, amazing weapon. Multi-barrel Gatling gun with yes. a fantastic rate of fire and uh, very accurate, very, very accurate. Yeah, so, yeah, because obviously with that big gun, you have to be accurate. Yeah, so like, I've heard like uh, stories before where it's like, is it already aligned like uh, to the aircraft or is it in your visor that the, the gun moves? So in the newer version of the aircraft, we had uh, we had the helmet mount sensors, so we could uh, zero the sensor and slave the gun to the sensor. So wherever wherever you looked, the gun fired at that place. Uh, it used to lay off and fire. Other than that, the uh, earlier you know in the old times, the Mi 25 and the 35, we had to go into a periscopic site to fire the missile. Ah, okay. Okay, so we had to go on the side and look into the periscope and then get onto the target, identify and then fire. Out here in the new aircraft, we had him on the big screen, on a black screen in front of us. Mm. Through the TV cameras. Mm -hmm. So we were getting the full feed. We could actually do a laser range finding. We could do whatever we wanted to and we could engage the target looking at the target rather yes. than going into a periscope. You know, it was, it was you know, very old fashioned firing that we used to do earlier. In fact, the oldest fashion firing I forgot to tell you that I did was from the Chetak helicopter. The okay. Chetak helicopter was just a few units in the Air Force. They had this missile, anti-tank missile, mm. uh, Scorpion, I think it was. Yeah, it was Scorpion, and it was fired. It had two, you know, uh, uh, wires which used to come out of the <laughs> missile, and nice. you had to control it. To actually, fly it like a kite. <laughs> it was it was an amazing amazing feeling and it used to go very slow chuck 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 it used to go round and round mm -hmm. and it used to go towards the target so i forgot to tell you about that anti-tank missile from the chetak and that was a that was a fun missile absolutely and our viewers will want to know what can you remember the first time you actually fired the gun cannon i'm not sure how you refer to it what was that like yeah uh, the the when when you fire the rockets or the guns you're your heart is going a little flutter. You're a little thing because at that point in time, your concentration is completely on flying the machine accurately mm. towards the target and aiming correctly. Because the helicopter is a very bouncy machine, you know, little bit of error here and there, the 
rockets can go all over. Wow. So you've got to be very steady, very steady in your flying. And at the point of fire, you should be very accurate in judging distances, very accurate in you know positioning for, for the attack. So all these things combined, you have to, when you look at it from outside, one needs to be a very, uh, a fairly decent pilot, if I may call it, uh, who, who can control the machine absolutely accurately. Mm -hmm. So that is very important to get the delivery going. And yes, there is there, uh, there is some you know operation operational degradation, if I may call it, when you are going to go and fire, you your heart also is firing at a higher pace. That's okay. You get used to it after some time. The first time you fire, you like when the gun first time fires, it throws out a whole lot of fire around it. You know, the, the flames come out on the sides, wow. and it is and the whole the entire aircraft, even with the front gun, it appears that it, uh, there's you know the aircraft is stopping in the air. Uh, so kick uh, back. <laughs> the, the kick, the kick, the reverse kick that uh, that you may call it. So the first time when the rockets are fired, they go from your sides. So you're like waiting for that whoosh to happen you know so so after some time it becomes a uh, it becomes habit you know because we uh, like you asked me this question earlier whether you know did you do any firing from the airplanes yes we had to do a fair amount of firing through the year as an annual armament uh, training requirement and we also were lucky we got a lot of missiles to fire in the initial part uh, when we were flying so we got a lot of missiles to fire we got all the kind of weapons that we fired we had adequate experience of using the airplane in an offensive role. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, one question like I would love to ask, uh, I'm not sure if I put in the questions, I might have done. Um, did you ever work with uh, any of the Apache guys or Cobra guys from other nations and was there much like um, interchange and ideas or anything there? Uh, we were not so lucky to uh, really um, fly with the Apache guys in the earlier times. Now, of course, we have the Apache here, so the Apache and the V-35, they work together. So they must be uh, doing a lot of stuff together. But when we were in, when we were abroad, when we were flying in Congo, the V-35 in Congo, we had uh, the Bangladesh Air Force and the Pakistani Air Force, they had their aeroplanes there. Oh, wow. So we, we, did, we did some kind of interaction with them, but it was not much. We really didn't do any flying exercises with them as such uh, to learn from them. Uh, no, we didn't. But we did get a, a large number of pilots from England who came and flew the uh, flew at high, high altitudes with us, and they flew the Mi-35. They had to have a look at the Mi-35 also. Yes, we showed them the Mi-35. So they were very keen to know how what all we do. Yes, we had some teams coming from there, but there was no formal exercise as such from where we could learn learn you know, from each other. Yeah. And did you ever get to work, or did you work um, with, you know, your Air Force's fast jet guys, you know, the MiGs, um, the Mirages, anything like oh, yes. that? Oh, yes. Uh, we have this um, Top Gun school called the TACD. Uh, you mm -hmm. must have heard of it. Yes. It's called the Tactics Air Combat Development Establishment. So I went, I, one of the first courses that was uh, held for the helicopter guys, I went for that course, uh, to for the Top Gun course. and. Uh, out there was the first time that we started flying something called dissimilar air combat. Nice. Dissimilar air combat. Mm -hmm. So that is the time we flew with the uh, MiG-21. We flew with the Mirages. And uh, good, it was very nice. It was, you know, they, those guys couldn't get us. Those guys couldn't get us because we were so low. They couldn't get us in their sophisticated <laughs> radars. <laughs> yeah, we, we used to be 
He used to have the thrill of pointing our nose into them and showing them the photographs of us shooting them down. <laughs> those kind of stuff. Wow. So it was, uh, uh, yeah, we had to prove, we had to prove ourselves uh, yes. in front of those guys. It was their bread and butter initially. Now it was ours too. So we had to prove a point to them that we were professional. We could uh, get them when we wanted to. I mean, when, when we could, we could get them. Um, because of uh, low speeds, you know, <clears throat> it's very easy for us to just duck down and under the trees and wait for him to go away. Mm -hmm. Best tactics against a fighter is to just duck down. He may, um, despite the fact that the new radars, of course, the, they can declutter. Otherwise, in the olden times, their radars could not. Once you're when they clutter off the ground, mm -hmm. they really can't catch. Uh, mm -hmm. And he, he can't shoot down at that at that angle uh, down at you in any case. Mm -hmm. So you're quite safe. You're quite safe from the unless you're flying. You know, at 500 meters or something, and then he gets you by chance. He gets you. Bad luck. You're bad. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, if you if you spot him early, it's very easy to kind of get away from a fighter. Mm -hmm. Not a problem. I, out there, we were taught about all this dissimilar combat as well as combat between helicopters. So we used to kind of simulate two Apaches and two, you know, something else, and ah. simulate, uh, and then we used to do this two versus two, two versus one. A multi-aircraft uh, combination uh, packages, you know, those kind of stuff. That must have been fun. That must have been so fun. Oh, it was. It was. It was one of the most difficult courses that I ever attended. Wow. Uh, yeah. Because it, you have to put in a lot of effort there. Yes. Yeah. It's not like the movies where you just go there and you just fly about all the time. There's, I'm sure, there's a lot of books. Oh, yeah, I, saw, I saw the new Top Gun the other day, and I said, "Wow, these guys are, <laughs> you know, portraying what a what a what a picture they're portraying about." Uh, flying, but yes, uh, the other for the civilian to know what it is all about. I think they did a job, good job. They did a good job at it. Yes. Um, so I wanted to uh, just talk a bit about uh, the 25 and 35 and the differences in the cockpit. You kind of mentioned it before, but if you can describe that for our viewers and what the big uh, big changes were. Uh, the Mi 25 and 35. The, the biggest difference was that we have a, we had a moving map display in the Mi 35. Mm -hmm. You could put a piece of map inside, and it was connected to the nav system, and and the cross could tell us where we are. Yes. So, so it was a very basic system, very very basic system from the Doppler. It was a Doppler based system. It was not a GPS based system. Also. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, we had a GPS separate on board, which was not interfaced with the with this uh, particular nav system. But when we got the Mi 35, the upgraded Mi 35, then of course the nav and the nav attack systems, they all combined together and everything was available to you uh, to the last meter. I mean, it was so accurate. Yes. So, so the uh, difference in the cockpit, basic difference in the cockpit between the Mi 25 35, not much, not much. The instrumentation a little better in the Mi 35. From, from the Mi 35 to the, the upgraded Mi 35, the Israeli upgraded Mi 35, there was a big difference. There was a big difference. So everything was coming on on, on a dark screen. Mm -hmm. So that was the difference. And of course, uh, the sights changed. Everything was uh, everything was electronic mm -hmm. after that. The helmets, of course, the helmets changed. Helmets were integrated helmets now. They had a boom mic. Otherwise, we used to put those big Russian masks oh, on yes. our face. And, the plant pot. You know, horrible, <laughs> horrible leather mask, which used to give you a permanent mark around your... <laughs> yes. <laughs> like a monkey when you came back. Yeah. <laughs> so, Nitin, obviously you mentioned that you flew in the Congo uh, on a, you know, in a conflict. Can you tell us about this and why it happened, maybe? Yes. Uh, 
I went to Congo in uh, 2006. 2006. The, the Indian Air Force had been moved into Congo in 2004. 2004, the first contingent moved to Congo. And of course, 1962, the Indian Air Force had already been there in the initial part of the conflict. Yes. When the civil war uh, broke out in Congo, that was, a, that was a long time back. That is the time when the Canberras had gone, actually. The fighters had gone. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that is a, that's a beautiful story in itself, which I have written about, actually. Coming back to the helicopter story, uh, the Mi-17s and the Mi-35s, uh, Mi-25s initially, were inducted into Congo uh, from 2004 onwards, approximately, yeah, 2004. And uh, we were based at two different places in Congo. Uh, we were in the eastern uh, eastern Congo, uh, on the borders with Rwanda, Sudan, that area. Uh, so we were, we were uh, fighting, uh, fighting there. What fighting? We were not actually fighting. Our job was to ensure that there was peace, actually. Uh, you know what happened was there was the Congolese army was very loosely knit, very loosely knit mm -hmm. army. Plus the fact that the control, the political control over the army as well as the entire huge country, such a huge mm -hmm. country, no communications with one end to the other. You know, so the, it was a very difficult country to govern. Mm -hmm. So there used to be these factions that used to form up within the army and they used to break away factions, they used to fight against each other. There was rape, loot, the works, everything was happening. Um, thanks to and wow. some civilians also used to kind of you know uh, merge with these dissident groups and carry out a whole lot of stuff that was happening, mm -hmm. right? So our our job was actually at one point was called show of force. Ah uh, yes yes. We used to fly, yeah. we used to fly the aeroplanes uh, with loaded aeroplanes of course. We used to fly wherever there was a problem happening. We used to fly there, orbit around there for some time. The people used to move out. They used to be afraid of us. They used to move out and then we used to come back. So that was a show of force that was happening. Yes. Only in a couple of instances in our time, it's happened about maybe five or six times totally till now, that the chapter seven of the United Nations that says the use of force to stop in fighting. That's where. So the chapter seven allows you to use the use of force, mm -hmm. for which New York will give you the you know clearances. So when there was this infighting became a little too much uh, during our, in once in, in our tenure, uh, the dissident groups actually it, it was so huge. It was there was a guy called self-styled uh, general called General Nakunda. General Nakunda, his faction almost ten thousand guys. Wow. They were moving. They were moving on to our base at a place called Goma. Okay, uh -huh. they were moving towards Goma and the UN and all of us thought that if they take over Goma, they will make sure that there's a lot of bloodshed, of course. But other than that, the United Nations will lose its foothold in the in the eastern part of Congo. Right. So there was a fair amount of panic uh, that set in. And so uh, the use of force was decided on and it was calibrated. It was not that we went to kill. We were told we to fire left and right of the people to make sure that they go away. Yes. And uh, the uh, the Indian uh, the ground forces also the Indian brigade in Goma was also activated. They had put their BMPs uh, in line to stop these people from coming in, but they did not fire a single shot because 
the the Indian Air Force helicopters managed to stop them well in time, oh. just short of Goma. So in one of these fights where um, things were going out of control and where the Indian contingent at a place called Sake came under heavy fire, they actually got caught in the crossfire. Mm. And so they were now offered, they wanted help. So that is the time we went and uh, I, I was lucky to be on a mission where, lucky or unlucky, um, for, for, you, for the viewers to decide, uh, there was this group of um, uh, those uh, officers of the Congolese army in a jeep of, of the faction that was fighting. Mm -hmm. They were going along a road uh, away from the fighting area and I was told by the ground commander to take a shot at him because if those guys were killed, mm. then the fighting would automatically stop, there will be a leaderless flight, fight. So we went there, it was late evening and uh, we managed to shoot this guy down and immediately the next day onwards, all the fighting stopped. Wow. The troops just disappeared into the hills. They just disappeared. So uh, our action that, that those three, four people who are fighting were to be killed, those uh, the senior leadership of the breakaway faction of the Congolese army, when they were killed, uh, things came back to normal very fast. But mm. Congo being Congo, these kind of incidents just kept happening. Mm. And especially towards the border with Sudan, which was as it is in its own, as it had its own problems. So there was a constant fight happening in, on the Sudan border, which was uh, where a large amount of attack helicopters were used for suppressive fire so that these guys the, uh, the these guys could separate out and not fight so essentially we were trying to maintain peace there was no actual uh, you know conflict conflict that was happening uh, mm -hmm. from the air and it was not meant to kill people it was mm -hmm. meant to restore peace and we did manage to a large extent to do that absolutely but uh, let's uh, get on to a lighter note here, Nitin, uh, before we wrap up the interview. Um, was there ever, uh, did you ever do any display work? And was there a, a display team for the 25 or 35 uh, with the Indian Air Force? No, no. We, um, the Indian Air Force didn't use this aircraft. As it is, the hours of the aircraft were so limited for operations that it was not used for display purposes. But however, however, whenever there was a VIP movement, Anywhere, you know, where they wanted to show power or something yes. like that, we were sent, we were told to do a fly past or whenever they, at, the, at the ranges when firing was on and, you know, some uh, uh, army big shot was coming or the prime minister was coming or somebody was coming, a two aircraft is to go and do a quick fly past and uh, maybe do an attack, a simulated attack cool. uh, on a target and go away, right? Other than that, on the, uh, on the Republic Day parades, the Mi-35 did operate uh, for a few years, yes, mm -hmm. uh, three aircraft formation used to operate, uh, on the, in the, but I didn't have the chance to, I was already out of, the, uh, out of that unit by the time they started flying the fly pass for the uh, RD parade. Yeah, because I've never actually seen one fly in person and I really want to see one. I've seen all the other helicopters, the Lynx, Chinook, you know, Black Hawk and stuff like that, but I've never seen a Hind. Uh, maybe, luckily, I might see one in a couple of years if it comes to Riyadh, but it's an absolutely beautiful uh, helicopter. But uh, to wrap up, uh, obviously, you've, you've probably got many, but have you got a, maybe a story or two that sticks out in your mind from flying the Hind? I'll give you one which is a little more fun. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, 
we I had gone to Bombay to pick up a new aeroplane which had come from Russia. So the Russian guys used to come and kind of fix it together, and then we used to fly with the Russians. So to fly with the Russians itself was a big problem in an international airfield. Yeah. He didn't know English, I didn't know Russian, oh, no. and we were flying in a tandem seater. And he was the captain, and I was the co-pilot actually. Right. So the, the RT calls to the air traffic control. If the air traffic control gives. So on the first flight with the Russian, um, he gave us, you know, after takeoff, climb to so and so height, intercept radial so and so. Thereafter, climb to so and so. So I came up on RT and said, "Can you give us a simpler departure procedure, please? Because the Russian cannot repeat this back to you." Right. Because I explained it to the Russian. So, so this was one of the things that happened, and we saw the Russians the way they work on the helicopter before the rotors even stop. They have opened the panels and they are readjusting the engine, this thing, and they are telling you, "Come on, start again. We'll put them." So those are those guys are really, really good. Yes. So we were we were doing an endurance check to a place. You must be knowing about Goa, which is a beautiful place. So our unit anniversary was approaching, and uh, we wanted to get some wine from Goa because Goa is famous for its wines. So we thought we'll pick up a few crates of wine and take it along for the celebrations at Patan Court because the aircraft had to be ferried all the way to Patan Court. <laughs> uh, so. We went. We went down to Goa, and weather was marginal, and we had just about two, two and a half hours left on the aircraft. So while going, we got a 70-kilometer tailwind. So we landed oh. in <laughs> fast enough. We picked up the stuff, and on the way back, you know how Murphy hits you. He was right there, and we just couldn't penetrate the weather. So with wine bottles on board, we were looking <laughs> for a place to land on the beach. Because the Mi 35 is a very, very difficult machine to land on an unprepared surface. Because the amount of sand it kicks up is not even funny. Yes. So we tried to go into the sea. In those times, I was not even we were not comfortable flying over large expanses of water. So we came back again over the land, and finally we gave a call to an Air India, you know, flying up up there, telling them that tell Bombay that you know we are unable to penetrate weather. So the Bombay air, air traffic tells us you're not permitted to come to Bombay. Weather is below your minimum. So when he transmitted it back to us, now we didn't know what to do because we were running out of fuel. We had just 700 liters left, and we had 45 minutes to go. No. So we just kept quiet, and we just carried on towards Bombay. We found a little hole in the cloud, and we went wow. through it. And there it was. Bombay was like it was raining, but we could see everything. So we told ATC that we are coming in. Then he says. So, uh, he says divert. I said I don't have fuel to divert. So he said, okay, you come closer to the airfield. So I went closer to the airfield, and then it all happened. He says, can you accommodate two more departures? I said I have five minutes endurance left on board. Oh. When I gave him the call, everything was silent, and he pushed out all the aircraft. And he said, "Okay, come into land immediately." Wow! And then we had all those crash tenders and ambulances and everything following us after we landed. Wow! And uh, we landed with almost nil fuel, and I had to go to the ATC and say, "I'm extremely sorry about what has happened, but uh, we were stuck between the devil and the deep sea. Actually, devil, the weather, and the sea on the one side. We just couldn't penetrate, and this aircraft is not supposed to have diversion fuel. You know, it's a fighter kind of an aircraft. It has mm -hmm. to." Don't carry this kind of diversion fuel and all that. So one hell of a story, and but it taught me a lot of things. I went back and I told people, don't ever take chances like this in your life. 
put your own life in danger for a few bottles of wine. In fact, in my book, you know, I have written this book called Up in the Sky. It talks about all helicopters, little, little stories about helicopters. So one of the stories in this is it was all for a bottle of wine. So I was, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, is the, what was, was the wine safe when you landed? Of course, of course. We enjoyed it later, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, what a story. And we're going to get onto your book in a, uh, in a bit, uh, Nitin. But how many hours yeah. did you get on the hind? I have more than two and a half thousand, almost 2,200, 2,300 hours. Almost half my flying on the hinds and the rest on the other aircrafts. So I've got a five and a half thousand out. Wow. <laughs> I've got 45 minutes on a chipmunk and I'm really proud of that. <laughs> It's a of any moment you get in there. Uh, exactly. It's bonus. Exactly, Nitin. I'll jump. I'll come and go into a cockpit anytime. Oh, brilliant. Break. Awesome. Definitely. Uh, but obviously, you showed your book there, Nitin. But uh, yeah, can you tell us about it? And obviously, you, you have your own website, but you do a lot of journalism work as well. Uh, just talk us through this. Uh, you know, um, one story that was kept for the last is about this. Uh, when the tsunami happened in 2004, I was posted at a place called Patiala in Punjab. I was looking after a radar. I, I was out of flying. I had finished my command tenure and everything was over. <laughs> and uh, one fine day, the tsunami happened and I volunteered and I went to the Andamans, the Andaman Nicobar Islands, which were massively, massively hit. Mm. I went there for the rescue, relief and rehabilitation work, went back to flying. I was the task force commander to look after the entire south southern islands of the Nicobar group where all the relief and rehabilitation was to take place. Mm. So we had uh, some helicopters flying through Burma, through Rangoon, coming through Cocoa Islands and uh, to us because there was no other way to get the helicopters by ship. It, was, take, it would have taken too much of time. So we got the helicopters in. We had about two helicopters serviceable on the island and then for the next one year I was managing the entire operations of flying and rehabilitation rescue work on these islands. So the experience itself taught me so many things about management of all kinds of, uh, including disaster of course, management of all resources, that I started writing the book called, uh, oh it's here, it's called A Few Good Men and the Angry Sea. we were the good men and hopefully yes we were and uh, we were 70 of us who went there and stayed for a year and we got back that island back to normalcy within 100 days it was a lot of hard work and uh, i've written about it in this first book of mine so i didn't write about it i just you know kind of maintained a diary and uh, unfortunately my uh, computer also crashed and i lost all the data but thankfully god has given me uh, a very good good memory (laughs) yeah Thankfully for that. Thanks for that. And uh, I started recounting this entire uh, script for this book ten years later, nine years later, nine years. Impressive. After the tsunami, and I wrote this entire book in one shot. I just kept writing it like a diary, and then I let the editors and the people do their jobs, you know, and put the photographs in, put everything in, and that was my how I started my writing. And I was motivated by. The editor-in-chief, who is a dear friend of mine of Rediff.com, it's a website, Rediff.com. He is the guy who actually motivated me to write, and he's the guy who actually got me to write thereafter. So my second book, 
It's about a, a paraplegic pilot. It's called Born to Fly. It's about a friend of mine who becomes a quadriplegic in an accident and how he, you know, how he takes his life thereafter. It's a biography. And thereafter, I wrote, of course, short stories about helicopter flying. I've written two more books after that. So, writing became my second kind of a passion after flying. Uh, after I came in close to my, you know, retirement and my senior days where one gets to fly, you know, once in a month or twice in a month uh, as an AOC of a base. After which, again, you're managing flying, but you're not touching a helicopter or any aircraft. So. I, uh, I took to writing, you know, with passion and I started writing and I wrote on historical facts about the 1971 war, about the Cargill war. I kept writing and thankfully Rediv.com uh, kept accepting my articles. So that's how my journey into journalism kind of thing started. And then, of course, I'm doing a very, um, like what you do about uh, talking to pilots, I'm talking to people who have flown all the historical aircraft was still alive, right from the Su-7 and the, you know, other old aircraft, like you did one with Golani the other day. Yes. So, um, so I'm talking to them and I'm getting the story of each of these aeroplanes in a kind of a book format and I'm going to do it uh, this year. So hopefully I, I, I am in touch with a lot of people who are wanting to tell me their stories about flying those old machines, you know. So that's what I'm doing now. That'd be absolutely amazing, yeah. And we're going to link everything that uh, Nitin just said in the description. So go and pick it up there and we'll link his website, which will uh, wrap up at the end. But I want to ask you, obviously, apart from aviation and writing, do you have any other hobbies? Oh, lots, 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 lots. I do. I love to cook. Okay. I love to cycle. I love to cycle. I love to trek. <laughs> I'm an outdoor person. I love to go all over. So we left. In fact, in Congo, we went and climbed a live volcano. It is one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. A live volcano in Congo. That's another story, of course, for another time. <laughs> All right. This could be a difficult one for you, but I think I know the answer. Favorite aircraft you have flown? Favorite aircraft? Oh, that's a difficult one. Why do you keep the difficult ones at the end? Uh, <laughs> but. If I have to really choose an air aircraft, it will be the Lama, the SA-315, the basic, basic aircraft which actually teaches you how to fly. All the modern aircrafts are button controls. I call them button pilots nowadays, you know. Button they just pilots, got buttons, right. they just keep pressing them and they, the aircraft goes from place A to place B. Even the helicopter goes and hovers and lands on its own. That is a basic aircraft which actually sees your motor skills. It, you can milk the, as I say, the milk the, you know, the controls milk the power of the aircraft to its maximum. Yes. So that's why I would, I would put uh, the Chetak and the Cheetah, the basic uh, helicopters, at the top of my list. Yes. Okay. I, I, I was going to say the Heinz just because it was like, it's just so cool. But yeah, yeah, that's where you build your skills. I totally understand that. But uh, is there a favorite um, aircraft you would love to fly, past or present? The aircraft I would like to fly now? Yeah, past or present. It can be gone, retired, or it can be now. What would you love to fly that you haven't? Oh, the Chinook is different. I've never flown a tandem. Wow, okay. The Chinook. Uh, it's in uh, the, um, the amount I've read about the Chinook and the Apaches in the Afghanistan uh, conflict and uh, 
by the use of the, by the Americans and the British. I would love to be in one of those machines to actually see how it was to fly those machines, uh, the modern gadgetry that they have. Yes, uh, I think those machines, those two machines are the ones that I would like to get into. Good answer. And uh, to f- the final question, uh, yeah, where can we find you online? Do you have a website, uh, Twitter, or anything like that for us to look you up? Oh uh, yeah, I am. I'm everywhere. I'm on Twitter. I've got a website, nitinsati.com, and um, I, my website actually I, I've got it up last year after I retired. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not being. I've just put my stories there. I've put my yes. blogs there. But I want it to be a more interactive website where you know people can come and talk to me and I can discuss uh, various issues about disaster management or flying or whatever. So um, I, I, I intend to get that uh, you know going better in the next few months. Hopefully I should. Other than that, of course, I'm on Twitter and everywhere else, uh, like everybody is nowadays, uh, Facebook, everywhere. Yeah, you have to be, don't you? These days, you can't, you can't get away from yeah, it. Yeah, you can't do without it. Can't do without it. Well, Especially so the kind of work I'm doing, I'm writing, I'm giving talks on television, I'm giving talks on online to people and I'm motivating, by the way, I'm motivating people to join the Indian Air Force and the Indian Armed Forces rather. Uh, so that's one of my new things that I've started to motivate boys and girls to join the Armed Forces. So I take wow. a lot of classes. And, you know, well, Nick, you must, you must never have a day off, like you just seem as go, go, go. <laughs> I hate it when I have. <laughs> no relaxing at all. Rather be doing something than just sitting brooding in my room, you know. I, I can't spend it. I'm a very, you know, you want effort was center on the go. Too much of energy. Too much of energy. Too much of energy. Thankfully, till now. Absolutely. And again, folks, we'll link everything that Nitin's uh, mentioned there, his website, uh, his books, and stuff like that. But uh, Nitin, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, sir. It's been lovely talking to you and going back into past memories. Beautiful. Thank you. Cheers.